Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. I know, I know, it's been an awful long time since the last episode, and maybe some of you were wondering if this podcast had come to a premature end. Well, I can happily tell you it hasn't. And what can I say? The reasons for the long delay are long, complicated, and utterly boring, and so instead of subjecting you to any of that, I thought it best we just get straight back into things. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie, by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. But because it has been so long between episodes, Maybe we should just revise how far we've come to date before we get going again. We began by charting Bottomley's account of how modernity developed its beliefs about work and how those beliefs have become an ideology sustaining the division of human life between the private realm of emotions and feelings and the public realm of work. From there, our analysis turned to Bottomley's argument for the creation of what he calls companioning pastoral care as the fountainhead of a prophetic ministry attending to those whose experience of work have been harmful and which also critiques modernity's construction of work and economy. This in turn led to an exploration of Bottomley's analysis of how the idolatry of hard work silences grief in the wake of work-related harm and how the victims of harm are robbed of their agency, not just by the traumatic event itself, but by the underlying assumptions that govern modernity's response to trauma. We next turned our attention to Bottomley's critique of the underlying principles that often govern the church's approach to pastoral care, and how these principles blind the church to the fact that it is called not just to dispense hospitality, but to receive hospitality at the hands of others, most notably notably in the form of trust, an often unrecognised category of agency exercised by those who have experienced work-related trauma. More recently, we outlined Bottomley's examination of the economic factors underlying work-related harm and how society's mechanisms for dealing with the death and injury that occurs within the workplace marginalizes and re-traumatizes those who have been harmed by or who are grieving as a result of work-related injury and death. And in our last episode, we explored Bottomley's argument that Australia needs a renewed prophetic dreaming if it is to overcome the national forgetting of injustice that is implicit, among other things, in Australia's colonial history. In this episode, 
we will begin an exploration of Bottomley's conception of how work and life can be renewed through the prophetic imagination, beginning with the need for deep listening to the pain of both the victims and the perpetrators of injustice. And so, without any further ado, let us now begin Ergasia episode 26, Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, part 8, Work and Life Renewed, Deep Listening. Bottomley begins with the observation that companioning families and organisations bereaved by a workplace death taught him and his colleagues the necessity for what he calls deep listening to the grief and trauma of both perpetrators and victims of injustice. This listening in turn calls upon practitioners to have the courage to listen to the pain of their own sense of failure and vulnerability a pain that acknowledges their complicity in the ideologies of modernity and the silencing of the victims of injustice caused by our captivity to the idolatry of hard work. Bottomley argues that, in undertaking this sometimes painful personal reflection, he and his colleagues learned to trust the agency of grieving people. Thus was born a multidisciplinary pastoral ministry to those bereaved by workplace death that opened Bottomley and his colleagues to the dehumanising reality of the systems designed to care for working people, revealing a fuller picture of the depth of injustice embedded within society's commitment to the ideology of hard work. Bottomley draws upon the conceptual imagery of the indigenous peoples of the Davy River in the Northern Territory to flesh out his understanding of deep listening. For the indigenous peoples of this region, deep listening is an interior experience of profound awareness, in which the listener recognises the deep springs of sacredness that reside in all humans. The deep listener both calls to and is called upon by these sacred springs, and in doing so encounters the other in a way that is not mediated by external ideologies or principles. Bottomley recognises that, despite the faddish obsessions with mindfulness and self-awareness in modernity, the concept of deep listening will be foreign to people formed in the rationalism of post-enlightenment traditions. He explains, however, that deep listening is not careful or correct hearing in order to understand an issue or solve a problem. It is paying attention to the stories that make people who they are. For Indigenous Australians, these are sacred stories told through ceremony and ritual that confirm the sacredness of life itself. This contrasts strongly with the underlying narrative of modernity, in which each individual can create their own life through their own hard work. In this modern myth, 
work is valued for and through its productivity. There is no sacred value to life beyond its economic utility. This is exemplified in systems of justice, in which courts hand out fines to companies in relation to a workplace death, provoking the despair of grieving family members who perceive their deceased loved one has been reduced by the justice system to an inhuman economic unit. Likewise in the horse trading between lawyers, as they seek to reach a settlement for a workplace death or injury, the profound disgust of those victims and families who feel their suffering is being bought off by blood money. And again the despair and pain of the children of dead parents when informed by those around them how lucky they are that they can purchase a new car with the compensation monies paid for their parents' death. These reactions of grief and anger and despair illustrate the thirst in modernity for a deeper story that listens to the sacred quality of life, and Bottomley locates this story in the biblical writings of the prophet Isaiah, in the silence that begins with the end of chapter 39 of the text and the beginning of chapter 40. This silence represents the long period in which the people of Israel endured exile under the rule of their conquering Babylonian overlords. The deep listening by the people to the prophetic word of judgment which God has spoken against Israel is possible only because God has first listened to the pain and the anguish of the exiles themselves and has decided to take radical action to transform their suffering into renewed and restored life. Thus the suffering of modernity, which arises from its idolatrous worship of work and economy, can be opened to the restorative grace of God's sacred story if we are prepared to exercise the discernment of deep listening. Drawing on the richness of indigenous spirituality, people in modernity might be able to listen within themselves to the painful silences created by the destructiveness of our own colonial history, and in doing so may recover their remembrance of God's desire to recreate within us an understanding of life as gift. In Christian tradition, this deep listening is called spiritual discernment. This discernment assumes that injustice in human life is the bitter fruit of idolatrous commitments to life-denying principles, such as the ideology of hard work, that is embedded within the fabric of life and work in modernity. As such, spiritual discernment brings to light the means by which this idolatry and its harm can be resisted. As with deep listening, the basis of spiritual discernment is that it trusts that hidden within the violence, injustice and despair created by the ideology of hard work, the spirit of life is still present and still has agency to, dis to disclose something new to humanity in order for the renewal of just relations between people. This belief provides a counter-narrative to the life-denying idolatry of hard work, 
inviting a new perspective on the bitter fruits of work-related harm. This new perspective is both relevant and urgent given the emergence over the last 40 years of the theory and practice of occupational health and safety as the relevant sphere within which life and death at work may be publicly discussed. Although occupational health and safety has studied work-related death and harm from numerous perspectives, there has been virtually no spiritual reflection on how workplace culture and practice values human life. In modernity, the cultural value of life is tied to our society's denial of death, in the process tearing apart the wholeness of life in order to sustain the illusion that, through the power of our own achievements, we can limit the power of death. But when the place of death in life is not respected, culture itself can become fragmented, confusing and destructive. This chaotic destructiveness characterizes modernity's culture of work, in turn influencing our views on what level of occupational health and safety is affordable. Our life-denying culture places economic value at the center of human existence, dehumanizing workers who are killed or injured because they can no longer be productive. The deep listening of spiritual discernment, however, draws our attention to a deeply human impulse that rebels against the reduction of life to economic value. This impulse prompts us to place a different value on life, one characterized by compassion. The conflict at the heart of modern occupational health and safety theory and practice, therefore, is the conflict between what is logically believed to be efficient and effective for business growth and social progress, and the question, which our hearts simply cannot ignore, of what value we place on human life as human beings. This question speaks in a voice we do not wish to hear, because it calls us into a painful space of sorrow, a space from which our idolatrous culture seeks to protect us by insisting upon the myth that hard work will keep our pain and suffering at bay. It also offers us the pleasures of consumerism to dull our sense of grief and loss. Finally, the myth of hard work offers us the image of the heroic autonomous individual who, through hard work and willpower, ensures their material success and thereby reduces normal expressions of grief to the realm of, the, of personal weakness and mental ill health. The idolatry of hard work minimizes death by trivializing grief, continuing a process of making dead people taboo by referring not to their deaths but to their passing. Speech about death is restricted to the private realm of emotions in order to sustain the myth that death has been conquered by a world always in progress. However, until we learn to engage the spirit encountered by the deep listening of spiritual discernment, 
occupational health and safety theory and practice will always be crippled by a failure to understand why it is doing what it is doing. If we cannot discern and remember the why of occupational health and safety, we cannot be surprised at its continuing failure to prevent the injustice of work-related harm. The upshot of all this is Bottomley's argument that it is not regulations that holds an effective occupational health and safety system in place, nor is it codes of practice or power or the latest technology. Rather, it is the commitment of the human heart, a commitment that refuses to be closed off to the voices of the dead, and which recognises that, above all, occupational health and safety is a sacred trust. This is the commitment which, at the very moment life collapses into despair under the weight of our culture's idolatrous assault, instead declares that life has meaning beyond measure. It is the commitment which, confronted by the profound emptiness of death, finds within it a profound fullness that speaks to the heart and teaches us the meaning of life beyond economic calculation. Thus it is that managers who have experienced a work-related death suddenly find their attitudes toward work, life and family radically changed. Thus it is that those who, who experience the work-related loss of a loved one discover that the hold which the powers of the world previously exercised on their hearts is now broken. A new understanding of self, of work, of families and friends emerges from the heartbreak that occasions death and bereavement. One new area of understanding emerges when we consider how we allocate our priorities in life. When we allow the voices of the dead to speak to our hearts, we find ourselves invited to re-examine how much of ourselves we have invested in the idolatry of hard work and its promised rewards of self-fulfillment and material security. And we are invited to reflect on the human cost of accepting such nostrums as time is money, which both gives us the illusion that time is under our control, able to be spent as we would spend our own cash, and which prompts us to take shortcuts or adopt dangerous work practices because wasting time would result in inefficiencies and financial loss. If, however, we allow the dead to speak to our hearts, the necessity of work over our lives will lose its power, and our understanding of occupational health and safety will be rooted in a profound reverence for life. We may come to understand that we do not have control over reality and the passage of time, and we may discover a sacred quality in life that reveals the richness of being human. By reflecting fearlessly upon the deaths of countless workers and our own encounter with grief, our vision may be lifted toward a new horizon that acknowledges the limitations of work to fulfil our deepest human needs and thereby be called into a fuller mode of being. Yet such is the pervasiveness of our culture of denial 
that whenever a death at work occurs, the ideology of hard work acts swiftly to rob the dead of their identity. We are encouraged to ignore our own pain by ignoring the humanity of the dead. We are encouraged to think of those who have died not as Tom or Wendy, but as the victim or the deceased. We are encouraged to buy into organisational narratives that shift the blame onto the person who has died. We are encouraged to think that it is appropriate that companies don't offer their condolences to bereaved family members in order to protect themselves from legal liability. We are made to understand that speaking publicly about unsafe workplaces and the causes of a workplace death represent a risk to job security. We are encouraged to get on with the job so that production isn't disrupted or profits threatened. In doing so, we learn nothing about life or about how to prevent work from killing people. According to Bottomley, the problem with all this is that such denial prevents us from integrating the reality of death into our hearts and thus our outlook on life. This lack of integration produces a festering anger that is the frozen grief of our loneliness and the bitter emptiness of our sorrow. And while our endless diversions, consumption and activism futilely attempt to distract us and enable us to escape from death, the ultimate legacy is having to endure a living death and the constant overshadowing of our workplaces by the unacknowledged spectre of our mortality. The idolatry of hard work which seeks to ignore and overcome death is undermined by a culture of fear that only produces fearful people. Thus everything occupational health and safety theory in practice does to prevent work-related death is ultimately driven by our fear of death itself and not by our reverence for life. The only way this culture of fear will be overcome is if our systems of occupational health and safety, compensation and rehabilitation are shaped by a deep listening that enables the heart to hear the voices of the dead so that we might draw from the mysterious reality of death a vast treasuring of life's ultimate value. And so it is that we conclude this episode of Ergasia. In our next episode, we will examine Bottomley's argument for how the Church can integrate the scriptural narratives that speak about God's intention for human work lived out as a response to God's goodness in creation with contemporary experiences of work lived within the space of the Church's prophetic dreaming. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at 
www.ergacia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.